Good morning and greetings in the name of Jesus. I have a question for all of us, for you. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? Alex, are you prepared? Are you prepared? You're probably thinking, for what? Did you think, for what? My answer is, for anything. Are you prepared for anything? No. I mean, are you prepared for a catastrophe? Are you prepared for a tragedy? A disappointment? A temptation? Are you prepared for a great blessing? Given the way we often think, we are concerned about things that might happen that we don't want to have happen. Are you prepared? Am I prepared? That might be a question you're more concerned about asking me this morning. Has your world ever been so abruptly changed that everything seemed chaotic and everything was upside down? Raise your hands if you think you've experienced something like that or if you know that you've experienced something like that. I'm fascinated with Charles Dickens' story, Great Expectations. If you've read it, Philip, or Pip, is in the graveyard looking at his mother's tombstone, and suddenly a voice speaks to him, and he's turned upside down by a convict, and he's threatened with his life if he doesn't bring food to him. And that child's world stays up down all the way through adulthood until he learns to not be a materialist and it comes right up right side up again at the end when his hopes are focused on something genuine rather than something wealthy or prestigious in the Bible Job's world was turned upside down I'm not even sure if he thought he had a world left his wife thought he should just die our translation says curse God and die some hopeful translator says bless God and die I think the first is the accurate interpretation because Job says you speak like a foolish woman thank God for those of us who have wives who encourage us to go on rather than to die another person whose world was turned upside down was Saul on the Damascus Road. The interesting thing there is this man was from his point of view doing everything right. And even after he's a Christian he says he was honestly and honorably zealous in everything he did. I'm not sure that I can say that. I know I can't say it about myself because always, uh, you know, I have motives that sometimes subvert my good intentions and have to worry about, you know, what my true motives are. I want to take you to Ephesians 6 this morning, a very familiar passage. 
I come here this morning because a few weeks ago I was listening to the students recite their memory verses and one of the verses to the small tykes was be strong in the Lord and they said that energetically and the juniors said theirs energetically and finally get all the way to the adults and then we wait for one courageous adult to speak softly the memory verse because adults don't memorize things very well they have too much going I guess but in closing to that Sunday school hour my mind went to the statement having done all to stand stand therefore and I commented on it at the time I mean with all of the rest of the service but the notion having done all to stand stand therefore is one that uh, does not leave me and uh, that's actually going to be the crux of the teaching this morning now in Ephesians 6 Paul speaks to various groups of people about social relationships and responsibilities he speaks to children they are to obey parents parents especially dads are not to provoke their children uh, dads have the long view of things they can be intense I have been intense with my children I confess that I have provoked them to anger by that anyway another class of people here is servants and employers slaves and owners if we read carefully between the lines but in our world it would be the relationship of employees to employers and by extension the audience that listens to a pastor Sunday by Sunday or in a schools students and teachers relating together I'm going to read about the armor of the Lord and it may be no accident that Paul points us to the armor of the Lord as we think about these social contexts because oftentimes that's where big battles take place but in a larger sense the battle between the flesh and the spirit is one that we all face the soul of man is the moral battleground of the universe verse 10 finally my brethren be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil we'll get to what the armor is shortly I think the word whole needs to be emphasized put on the whole armor of God and those of you who have heard the legend of Achilles Achilles heel you know what Achilles heel is it's the uh, tendon that pulls your foot up and back you can feel it you can pinch it it's the tendon right above the hard part of your heel well Achilles was born and a prophecy concerning him was that he was going to be killed in a battle so his mother takes him to the river Styx and dips him in the water and that water protects him now he's untouchable right but it's like dipping chocolates where she was holding on to this baby uh, it was not protected by the water and sure enough as the story goes on he is killed in battle when a poisoned arrow cuts through the tendon of his heel have you heard that story? you know something about it 
that's a legend, but it demonstrates the truth that if you're really going to be protected in battle, you need to be protected all the way. But on the whole armor of God, they may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The reason is, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Immediately when I read this verse, my mind flashes back to the story of Jacob, who is wrestling not against flesh and blood. He thinks he is, or is he? He wrestles with an angel, a good angel, who is to turn him around. And I suggest to you in that wrestling match, the real wrestling match went on within the darkness of his world, the spiritual wickedness that was within him. Well, I've garbled this story a bit. It doesn't work well. But in the end, his person is crippled, and he gives up his dishonesty, and from there on, he's straightforward and true. But he's damaged in it, too. He limps after that. A mark in his body of what took place, a mark that's respected by all the Jews down through the ages, because they don't eat that ham meat that was damaged in that battle. Remember a little detail? So in verse 11, we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, Paul says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. I say good morning to people this morning, which is the same as saying good day to you. And they said good morning to me, and they said God bless you, and I said thank you, or I said God bless you also, and that's normal. We live in a good day, a good time, and this is a good day. And no one is uh, terribly sick here this morning. Some of us have colds. Uh, everything is calm and placid, and if there is thermal anywhere, it's within. I, I'm not, I didn't look at everybody here, but people seem to be content. They seem to be relaxed. Smiles or, or uh, some sign of interest in what's going on. And yeah, who would ever imagine that a catastrophe could happen? That you know someone could be killed in an auto accident, or someone could just die from a stroke or a heart attack. <coughs> Are we prepared for anything? Now with that question, most of us would say, well, I'm not, no, what do you mean? Well, no, I'm not prepared to, I'm not prepared to do the impromptu devotional on Wednesday evening because the ordinary speaker didn't show up, or I'm not prepared to, well, you fill in the blank. What aren't you prepared to do that you might be asked to do? Maybe you're, pre maybe a brother or a friend says, I, I'm, I've got this problem, I, could you lend me some cash? Well, I'm not prepared to do that. I don't have the liquidity to do that. On and on it goes. <coughs> what are we prepared for? Well, in this reading, we are to, prepare, to be prepared for a battle 
against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. In other words, against the great adversary, Satan, the devil, who resists all things good. And since this is a good day, and since we know there are bad days, we need to be prepared to withstand an evil day. Now we sometimes call things bad that are good because we don't see the whole picture. Maybe an appointment can't be kept through no fault of our own. And we are disappointed. Other people are disappointed. And yet somehow as time goes by we understand that it was best the way it happened and we can say that because we are people of faith and we understand that God overrules in his providence and his care for us. We sometimes thank God for his good providence and when I'm feeling a little bit, I don't know what, I say, and what is his bad providence? And there is no bad providence of God. Would we agree to that? His providence is always good. And yet in our limitation we emphasize that his providence is good by saying it is good. Take unto you the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, key verse this morning, two pieces of one verse, standing back to back. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked you've read the frontier stories where Indians with flaming arrows shoot them over the stockade walls and it lands in the straw roofs and the stockades are burnt out I saw a news item this week where some innovative Mexican had built a catapult on the other side of a place where the wall is completed and he was pulling it back and loading it with packages of drugs and across the border into the U.S. I suppose the payment happened somewhere else. I can't visualize the money being shot back. Anyway, fiery darts of the wicked. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer, and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and then he makes a personal request a plea for himself Paul speaking that utterance would be given to him they could be bold to make known the mystery of the gospel so we have direct imperatives commandments You're to put on the whole armor of God to be able to stand, but then we are told, having done all to stand, stand therefore. There are implied imperatives here in the verbals. You are to be watching. You are to be taking. You are to be praying. Not quite as abrupt and forthright. <coughs> This translation 
implied in having done all to stand to stand therefore is also noted in verse 13 we see it there too I lost the phrase I wanted the transition from putting on and taking unto you make a similar relationship having done all to stand stand therefore Now all of us have prepared for things. And when we are doing something new for the first time or when we are experienced, we can prepare a long time and we can put off doing because we haven't prepared enough. Have you ever been in a situation where you are deliberately procrastinating, preparing you say, I've done that, because, yeah, it takes some courage to go ahead and do what you've been preparing to. And everyone looks forward to getting a license to drive, right? And I remember distinctly having my uh, junior operator's license. I remember driving with my parents. And then I remember the day to get the license and then being on my own. And while it was something to look forward to, I remember a feeling of uh, responsibility and danger and risk that went with that. Maybe I'm strange that way, I don't know. It wasn't that I was not used to handling equipment or powered equipment, having grown up on a farm, running trucks and tractors and that sort of thing. Having done all to stand, stand there full. Why should we stand? Verse 14 stand therefore number one we stand for God and right truth and right now God's from my very human perspective quite capable of taking care of his world without me being around and that's true for all of us and there's a commonplace among us that says that if we fail in what God has called us to do he will find someone else to do it He may find somebody that uh, may not do it as well as what the first person he called was to do it. But God looks first for willing hearts, not necessarily the quality of the work, because he can take a willing person, a person that is trainable, and he can develop that into something very useful. Historians have criticized uh, Jacob Ammon, who's the Amish is named after as being maybe a blunt or something like that but uh, one historian speaking on that is who says it's not what we look at we look at a man that was willing to do God's will and to stand for truth and I like that I like that very much because I think all of us who have been called to things will know in our heart of hearts that somebody else should be doing it think of Moses he knew full well that someone else could speak better than himself and somebody else should be doing it he went on the quest and and his brother Aaron spoke for him and we know the story that in that was a trap which uh, caused problems in Israel because Aaron 
why he could speak turned out to be wimpish too and so he caved in to the Israelites when Moses was gone they said what are we doing out here in this wilderness we want to be back in Egypt we want the gods of Egypt and Aaron I don't know to save his life or what to bring all the gold stuff and he made a golden calf and then he lied to Moses and said we just threw it in the and we threw it in there and this is what came out I too thought of the story of the nine lepers and the one that turned back who was a Samaritan who was truly thankful he really was but I wonder how far down the road he was till he realized I'm going to a Jewish priest to be certified clean and I wonder if he panicked and I wonder if he turned back with a double urgent thankful heart because Jesus told him go thy way thy faith that made thee whole or something like that interesting little twist on the story there stand therefore for God and right what does this mean it means that sometimes sometime I'll almost guarantee it to everybody here you will need to stand alone and you say alone you look left and right or right if you're at the end or left if you're at this end and you say I'm not alone I've got all these fine Christian friends here and I need to stand alone but sometimes the loneliest places to stand is among the closest friends that you have because that's where the greater pressures are we call that peer pressure Does anybody know anything about that? Standing alone, standing for right, does it mean we need to be impolite? Does it mean that we need to be nasty? It means that we can be civil. It means that we can be courteous. We don't even need to explain ourselves. But when we do, we need to weigh our words carefully to be persuasive. Thirdly, we need to stand courageously now what's going on when a person stands courageously my wife said to me in the car this morning uh, do you feel nervous when you get up front yeah, yeah. So I said what would you feel like if you had to stand up front she wouldn't do it she, she just couldn't do that well, being courageous doesn't mean that you don't feel intimidation. It doesn't mean that you don't feel fear. You see, a brave person does what is right in spite of his feelings. I think we need to make that clear when we encourage ourselves and our children, our youth, to do what's right and to be courageous. It's normal to have fears. Fear is a God-given thing to protect us from danger. We slow down for the curves. We're careful about bare wires. We complete wiring jobs. A friend whose house isn't finished, it, it, uh, it frightens me when I'm there. You get these holes in the wall and you see these wires and if you touch the switch. I mean, how would you turn the switch on and off in the dark if you didn't see what you were doing? I don't know. <laughs> We are afraid of rattlesnakes. One in our yard, dog who never backed anything else, but 
wildly at that. And, well, my wife was frightened about it. I didn't like the snake either, so we gave him a hasty dispatch by chopping his head off. Stand courageously. But fear, fear is also a weapon of the adversary, one of those fiery darts that he throws at us. And when it comes to an issue of God and right and good, and whether we stand alone or not, that kind of fear is disabling. We want to be very careful there that we do not cave into fear. Being courageous should not make us rash. We are told how we relate to each other, the social relationships. We are told how to prepare, especially against temptation. Maybe I should explain that uh, when a catastrophe overtakes us, the temptation in a catastrophe may be to say, I remember it. You've got cancer. The doctor told me, after it was 35, 25 years ago, and he said, I'll give you 50, 50 chances of surviving it with the treatments that we can work up. We'll check around what people have done before. We found 49 cases exactly like what I had. I distinctly remember praying for healing. And I remember the clarity that came to my mind when I thought, I am not a statistic. If God wants me here or there, it will be well with me. And then we can cope with it. God answered my prayer. I was able to find peace. I was able to sleep by praying for close friends who had deeper needs than healing from cancer because there is the deeper sin problem that needs to be dealt with in life. These parts of the Christian armor are all well known to us. It's so familiar that it could be... Um, Maybe we've done the talk about it this morning, but there are children here, and we need to be reminded as well. As children, as Bible school students, Sunday school students, so on, I suppose all of us have drawn a picture of a Roman soldier, or maybe had a handout sheet with one, and we labeled the helmet, and we labeled the breastplate, and we labeled the sword, and we labeled the sandals or the shoes what did I miss I don't know what I missed anyway and so that's kind of riveted into our minds and it's good for us to discuss this chapter and to remember it and to think about it there is uh, strength to us from these chapters as we meditate on them and it's good to come back to it once in a while In 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul, who's writing there, has this metaphor of the armor in mind, and he talks about the armor of righteousness. And I forget right offhand what he's supposed to be doing with the armor of righteousness, so I'll look to it. 2 Corinthians 6, 7. Oh, he's forced to defend his missionary work his gospel witness and so he explains 
what all happened to him. Then he apologized for having to explain that because it sounds like bragging. And he didn't want to do that either. And he talks about the ministers of the gospel. Ask them in verse 4, in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of the gospel, in patience, afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in punishment. Sounds like somebody's got to be prepared for something that's going to survive. In tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by love unfeigned. by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Be sure that in your Christian life you are fully armed with the whole armor of God. You're not going to be able to weld, wield the sword, which is the word of God Unless your hand has is accustomed to feeling it in your hand, I mean, you, it has to fit your hand. The word has to be in your mind. I remember in overseas, we buy these uh, machetes to whack down brush and that sort of thing, and you get them without a handle. And uh, so then, what you would do is you'd find a piece of wood. And then you drive it onto the handle. And then the next part of the deal was that you went to work with it, but you didn't work very long until you were looking around for a knife and a piece of sandpaper. And as you worked, you constantly, constantly reshaped that handle until it wouldn't blister anymore. I, I blistered my hands severely with wooden handles that don't fit because they're sharp edges or splinters or, you know. So, Having done all to stand in your preparation, in your Bible study, in your praying, there will come a time when you've got to stand. You've got to, we call it the place where the rubber meets the road. To be, I don't mean to be slangy with that. But at some point, you must step out of your ivory tower into the real world using the tools that God has provided for you and which he hasn't given to you while you're under anesthesia which you have learned to use, fully cognizant of what they are intended for, with the Spirit guiding you. Tremendous uh, passage of Scripture. Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 calls the believers together, and he says, let us, described as people of the day, let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the rich paradoxes of the scripture is that Paul speaking again in Philippians says, we are to work out our own salvation. Sounds terribly humanistic, doesn't it? But that's not the end of the sentence. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. There's a partnership in how we are saved. There's a partnering 
working together between God and our will and the wrestling that goes on must destroy the self in our lives in the same way that the self was destroyed in that dark night when Jacob didn't know what he was doing except he was fighting for his life wound up wounded but in the daylight he was a changed man the moment of truth and what we are is in the time of action when the test comes we can talk endlessly about anything and have all the answers but until until we must act we do not really know I appreciate the emphasis in Sunday school this morning to step away from rationalizing the answers to simply say this is what I believe because God said so If you read carefully in the first two chapters of the book of Romans, you will find out that God's revelation, first revelation, is not the word. It's conscience. You may step up to a person on the street who despises the word, and the only way you're going to get to him is through his conscience. And you won't do it except the Spirit of God do it because no man can live with the inconsistencies that exist between how he wants to be treated and how he treats other people Second Corinthians 10 is a very important set of verses that correlates with the armor chapter in Ephesians 6 Thessalonians that I just read from Second Corinthians 10 hey I'll just read the setting I think it's important to have setting with the verses that we use as um proof text so I'll read from verse 1 now I Paul myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence and base among you tongue in cheek there a bit he was a small fellow right means Paul means small and I worked with a missionary friend close friend from my home community who was small and uh, I was tall and awkward he was small and active he, had to, he told me one day that the small guys are kind of noisy because it makes up for their lack of size and we had this good joke about that but anyway so much for that Paul says I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence I'm sorry wherewith I think to be bold against some but which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh I'm sorry I didn't get the emphasis placed right with the punctuation there I don't know if I want to reread it to try it. It's not good to stop halfway through at colons and semicolons. You can become disoriented. But anyway, let's go on to verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. My soul, your soul, humankind is the battleground 
the moral battleground of the universe. What's in eternity? It seems like there was a battle in eternity. You know, Satan fell from heaven. But there's no grace for his salvation. In the, in the present, time is grace. And we have opportunity to be saved. So we are saved, right? Verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And the most important verse in this chapter, to my mind, is in the parentheses. Commentary on Ephesians 6. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Carnal means fleshly. If you've eaten chili con carne, you've eaten beans with meat. Flesh. Carne means the flesh, the carnal. We use it, flesh compared to spirit. And he goes on, let's read 3 and 5 together now. So we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Casting down imaginations, don't be afraid to use the gifts that you have developed, having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Cast down imaginations, those fears. Cast down every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. And then there's, see, it implies in this verse too that you could be, you could think you're well prepared prepared and then you could act in a way that's self-serving. Is that too much of a stretch? I don't think so. But the emphasis this morning is in our preparation let's be prepared to do and then let's act. And to do that we need to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ with a readiness to avenge all disobedience in ourselves when our own obedience is fulfilled. having done all to stand stand therefore and having put on the army, armor take it with you and use it the question I leave with you this morning is what kind of a soldier are you what kind of a workman are you what kind of a soldier, what kind of a workman am I and the ultimate question is when the son of man cometh will he find faith on the earth